Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Good evening. Uh, my name is David Hepworth. We begin, uh, like all formal gatherings, with apologies for absence. And I have to apologize on behalf of Mark Allen, who's unwell. I don't mean like Jeffrey Bernard is unwell. You may remember, which is uh, an old favorite. He's, uh, he's just recovering from some surgery, so it's taken a while, so... Uh, you're in my tender care this evening, but I'm not the main point this evening, because obviously we're joined by, I think what's fair to call two legendary writers talking about two legendary artists. And in the second half of the evening, we have a break halfway through, uh, second half of the evening we've got Paul Morley talking about his book about David Bowie. But first, talking about The Beatles which I think is fair to call his specialist subject. We're joined all the way from Kentish Town in, in his special It Ain't Half Hot Mum <laughs> gear. Would you please welcome the legendary Hunter Davis. Thanks, Dave. Actually, I don't live in Kentish Town. I live in Parliament Hill Fields. Ooh. Oh, well... And I bought the house in 1963. It cost me £5,000. <laughs> Three storeys, garden, garage, and I tell everybody every day in the street to really piss them off. <laughs> but Islington is the deep south, so I thought, ah, I better wear something tropical. Right, right. Because <laughs> you were saying you've never been round here before, have you? Not this particular street. Right. No, this I pub. Can... Why are there more men here than women? <laughs> <laughs> is it because football... And the Beatles attracts men. Is it because the men are avoiding going home and they've gone to the pub in order to get drunk or start? No, why is it? There's only about six women and a hundred men. Dave, in three seconds, tell me why. They, men tend to be quicker to book tickets for oh, these things because they've got less to do. Oh, oh. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> True. Yeah. Uh, 
And uh, but anyway, I'm sure this will this will appeal equally to to both sexes. And um, it's just a delight to have you here to talk about this this huge compendium here, the Beatles book by Hunter Davis, which you I think pretty much in the first in the first line of the book you say this is my last book about the Beatles. Actually, I've done very few. I did the authorized biography 40 years ago. And then for 40 years, I did books on 40 different other topics. But by sequence of events in the last three or four years, I've done three Beatles books. I did the John Lennon Letters, and I did the Beatles Lyrics. And I like to think those two were original primary research, showing the fans stuff they'd never seen in their life before. This is an encyclopedia, and it's uh, a whopper, and it's... uh, there have been so many Beatles encyclopedias and my room is groaning with them and I turned it down when the publisher wanted to do it but five years ago and it went on and on and on and then he said to me having seen all my memorabilia and all this stuff he said you can use all your stuff all your souvenirs and it will be your legacy and it was the word legacy <laughs> but I'm, it's in four parts I'll just tell you very quickly because I don't want to promote the book <laughs> It's, in, it's songs, people, performances, and pe- people, performers, places, places. It's four sections, and I've done, uh, done the songs, and I've got three different experts to help. But the, but the unique selling point, or the unique annoying point, the fact, the fact it's comprehensive and covers everything, is I decided, you know, with restaurant guides and hotel guides, they give them stars or a rating. Yeah. I've given a rating to everything. And you out have of 10. everything. I've given it to songs. I've given it to people. How stupid is that? I've given it to performances. And it's just, it really is just to, we've explained why we've done it. And it's to sort of make the real fans say, absolute rubbish. Why right. did he give that 10 out of 10? Why did he give Love Me Do 10 out of 10? And explain it's not their best song but because it was the first one and they did it and it was vital in their career. So that's how we've done the format. So it's amusing, I think. So even people, as you say, have got marks out of 10. So yeah. Jane Asher has got marks out of 10 as a person. I can't remember. Well, she is I the I think she o- does quite high, actually. It's, but she, it's not 10. She's the only person on the whole planet since Neil Aspinall died who was in the Beatles circle for quite a long time and has never talked about them, ever. No, she she's hasn't. never done a book. She's never revealed anything. She's never talked about Paul. And yet, so many of Paul's songs were inspired by her. And they lived together. And Paul moving into her, her house was a huge... Coming to London was a big thing for Paul, from his council house in the north. But moving into Wimpole Street with his posh family, mother, uh, professor, and the father, whatever he was, and this lovely house, and the boys at... Westminster weren't there yes, yeah. and Paul loved it all because Paul's a conservative with a small c <laughs> and it was an entree into a sort of professional middle class London life which you would never have come across otherwise let's talk about the Sorry. journey that kind of led you to, to the Beatles and now I couldn't resist <laughs> sharing this picture because you know if you google swinging 60s that's the picture that comes up I know, do because that was swinging 60s central. I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know why you're saying that. No, so this is, this is you and your swing. family. So when is this? This was, well, I know because that, 
That's our third child, born in 1972, Flora. Oh, right, OK, so it's beyond... This is not swinging. This was our Christmas card done by a friend of mine, the Sunday Times, Frank Herman, photographer. And we decided to get the family together and do a Christmas card, and we decided to dress up in stuff we had in the house, roughly Edwardian. So my son's in a sort of sailor suit, right. came from the house. I'm wearing a silly hacking jacket, and my wife is... I can't see how it's swinging 60s. Well, I, I, I tend to associate swinging 60s with a lot of it was yeah. Edwardian and Victorian nostalgia, wasn't it? But she would have been wearing a miniskirt. She would have had a Vidal Sassoon haircut yeah, yeah. to be swinging 60s. I suppose it's... What's that? Lord Kitchener was my Batman. I was my... Lord yeah, Kitchener's whatever Batman. it was called, yeah. So, but you, you go into this position... Those boots are Bieber boots. Yes. Ah. <laughs> because you, in the mid-60s... I used to sit at home in Yorkshire. You think, were born. And, and oh, think, come on. And think, that's the man I want to be. There's this guy called Hunter Davis yeah. who, used to, who writes the Atticus column in the Sunday Times. Mm. And as far as I can work out, all he does is swan around <laughs> London having lunch with glamorous people and writing quite short pieces about them. Yeah, it was easy-peasy. I found this today. This is from October 1965. You probably can't read this. I'm going to read the first paragraph. The, the words are quite short. <laughs> George Best is a very shy, quiet boy of 19. So he's obviously <laughs> being introduced to the Sunday Times readership. He has a soft Belfast accent and a Beatle haircut. His wage for the week before last was £175. <laughs> and clearly the readers of the Sunday Times are meant to read that and go, that's a scandalously large amount <laughs> to be paying some very, worthless... Very yeah. Some lad. So tell us about your, I, your time on the Atticus. I have been... I joined the staff of the Sunday Times in 1960, and for three years I was the boy on the Atticus column, never got my name in the paper, was always overlooked for the job, and I had to do pieces about who will be the next Archbishop of Canterbury, <gasps> or the next... Master of Balliol or Ambassador, or, and I, as if I cared. I wanted to do pop stars, I wanted to do football. It went on and on, they wouldn't let me do it. And then suddenly in 1964, the 60s didn't really arrive till 1964, that's when really, and it suddenly all changed. And people from my background, north of England, grammar school, provincial university, uh, we were suddenly like the Beatles, we got a spin-off from them. People thought, oh, well, they, they've got there on their own without having gone to a public school. They must be. So I started doing these people, and I went to see George Best, and he wasn't drinking, and he was living in digs, and he talked about Mr. Law and Mr. Charlton. So this was the beginning of me doing... Well, I was doing footballers, but I did photographers, and I did other sorts of people that I was really interested in. You said earlier, Dave, that you wanted to be me. You won't believe the very first person who said that to me. The next week, during this column, I went to Bristol to interview a young half-Polish boy called Tom Stoppard, who just had a play on at the Edinburgh Festival called Rosencrantz, and he told me, because he was working on the What's the Bristol paper, the evening? The, no. Bristol, the Western Morning News. And he told Western me, and I thought he was arse-licking, I want to be you. Yeah. 
I want to come to London and do the Asagas column. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I've seen him since. And re, well, you must me. have had loads of people say that to you over the years. It was one of those jobs what, that everybody envied. What they, what people normally say, and I've been at this a very, very long time, is that I wish I'd got away with writing about the Beatles and writing about football. Because blokes of a certain age, I from eight to 80, that's their two passions in yeah. life, music and football. So how did I get away with it? But you did. All right. And that led to... I, I've got to introduce this, because this was a favourite favorite film of mine from the late 60s. Here We Go Around the Mulberry Bosch, which was a kind of sex comedy, wasn't it? <coughs> Set in Stevenage, wash, wasn't wash it? Wash your mouth out. <laughs> <laughs> and you wrote the book for this. This was my first novel. My wife had already got a book published, and I thought, well, I know her. If she can get a book published, she can write it. I'll have a go. And so it was a sort of slice of life from Carlisle, my hometown. There's a gentleman here from Dalston. And we from Carlisle, the big city, looked down upon people from Dalston. Even more, we looked down upon people from Wigton, oh, such yes. as Melvin Bragg, with straw sticking out of their ears. Yeah, yeah. Farm. And I did a, a book, it was just about a bloke in a council house trying to go out with a girl from a semi. That's all it was, girl after girl. And it was bought as a Hollywood film, and I did the screenplay, which was absolute rubbish, awful screenplay. Uh, but the music in the film was Spencer Davis and Traffic and Stevie Winwood. At one time, we hoped that Paul McCartney might do the theme tune for it, because in the 60s, he did a couple of theme tunes for films whose names escaped me. The Family Way was one. Well done, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> I'd... I'd interviewed Paul in 1966 on Atticus. This was my doing footballers and pop stars and gritty northern novels. And Eleanor Rigby had come out, and I thought, it's not just the tune, I thought the words are brilliant. I thought, this is poetry. I bet it's the best poetry of 1966. She leaves at a jar by the door, her face. It's just, isn't it? You tell, you tell so him I, that. So I went to see him, and I talked to him only about the lyrics... Went to see him in Cavendish Avenue, where he still has his London house. He just moved in. And I did a piece about it, and I said it would be the best poetry of 66, as if I knew. Six months later, I met him again with a different hat on. I was with Clive Donner, the director, and we tried to talk him into, but he didn't do it. But while I was there, I said to him there should be a, a proper book about the Beatles. There have been two little books about him, about them, uh, both little skittery paperbacks, and I said, it'll be a proper hardback book because I've done two books. And he said, good idea. You'll have to ask Brian. And he helped me there and then write a creepy letter to Brian. He dictated almost... You the sat thought. there and you I wrote... Sat, I wrote notes. Right. And I sent it to Brian. And I went to see Brian in Chapel Street in Belgravia. There oh, is. there he is. Yeah. And I can't believe, looking back, that Brian Epstein was only two years older than me. He seemed so sophisticated, such a man of the world. He was so beautifully turned out and beautiful accent and lovely clothes. He had this lovely house in Belgravia. He had, I remember sitting waiting to see him. He had two Lowry paintings. I'd never seen a Lowry. I thought Lowry only did drawings. And I saw him and we agreed... Wait, is that your pacemaker, Dave? Yeah. yeah. 
coming from coming from Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> and I, while I was talking to him, and my agent came, he offered us a clause in the contract to do the book, which we'd never asked and never thought of. The clause was words defect. He would not allow any any writer access to the Beatles for two years after my book came out. <laughs> so we're talking in 1966. The book came out in 1968. Two years later, it was 1970, and the Beatles were no more. But the whole of the two years I spent doing the book, I never knew I was going to be the authorised biographer. So wasn't I lucky? <laughs> so was, was there a financial deal there with the £3,000. No, for I, you... I, my advance from Heinemann in 1966 was 3000 which is the same I got from Mulberry Bush, that was the... And I gave a third of it... To NEMS to Brian Epstein's company. So they got a, a third of it. You gave a thousand pounds to the Beatles. Yeah, they were wet, they were made up. I gave money to the Beatles. <laughs> that was their only involvement in this. No, they gave. No, but I mean, in terms of financial, that was all they control. got. Yeah, yeah. Did they have control of the book? Many years later. Oh yes. When I did the John Lennon letters, and I had to share it with a certain person, uh-huh. she got fifty-fifty. All right. But she owned the copyright, so I'd know. It's an avant-garde artist for always a lot, lot more hard-nosed than, <laughs> than these people. So, you know... He was a lovely man. He was a nice man. No, he was a nice man. He... I later discovered that he lost a million pounds of the Beatles' money in a dodgy enterprise in the Bahamas, and he was so scared to tell them that some con man had gone off with it. So, but, he, but he, was quite, he was quite soft person, wasn't he? He was not, uh, he, not difficult. He, he loved them. He loved them. My theory was the fact that he was gay, but he only liked macho boys. And he liked macho boys who didn't like him. And he liked being beaten up by them. And he'd give them drugs and pills. And then he'd be full of... Then they would steal things. That first time I saw him properly, he played Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. He played the acetate, sitting there proudly. I said, that's absolutely amazing. And I thought, because people in the publishing house were saying, the Beatles bubble will burst. Don't give him too much money. And when I heard Strawberry Fields, I thought, it's unbelievable. And my second thought was, what will the ordinary Beatles fans think of this when it's so weird and psychedelic and the words are stream of consciousness? And I said to Brian, what does it mean? I don't know. What does Strawberry Fields mean? And he was from Liverpool, but he didn't go in that area. And he didn't know... He did... I, 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 in the original 1968 thing, I have a phrase saying, Brian was a gay bachelor. And nobody in 1968 used that phrase. And I couldn't write about him being gay because it was against the law. Secondly, his mother, who was called... What was his mother called? Queenie. His yeah. mother called Queenie. <laughs> She denied it. But really, I, this is my theory, the reason, the really reason why he went to the Cavern Club, watching all these kids in leather gyrating, because he fancied John. Right. So one of the points, one of the things, points you make in this book is that you are actually one of the last people to have met these kind of people yeah. who played considerable part in the, in the Beatles story and are obviously aren't around anymore. There's another one here, which is... Aunt Mimi. Aunt Mimi, yeah. John Lennon's Aunt Mimi, who you met. 
I, I spent roughly the first six months of working on the biography not really talking to them, being with them at parties, but not cross-examining them. I decided to go back to Hamburg. I decided to go back to Liverpool and track down people like Pete Best, who had disappeared from the story, and then I came back and I told them what had happened. I bitterly regret that these 18 months to two years I spent with them, I never used the tape recorder. When I was with them in my house or their house, one-to-one, I'd been writing it down in my horrible handwriting. If I was at Sergeant Pepper in the studio or at the photo shoot for the, the cover, I wouldn't write anything down in case they turned to me so you're trying to... I was trying to be... Be a mate. A fly on the wall. Right. So I'd come home late at night and I'd go straight to my typewriter and I'd write down my notes that happened that evening. And I was looking the other day at my notes for the Sergeant Pepper photo shoot and I have saying during the whole of the evening one of the, sta- one of the models was of Hitler. He stood by the corner in a corner because at the last minute they were talked out of having him yeah. on the cover. <laughs> But so I, so I never... So I interviewed Aunt Mimi, who's... Am I shouting? I interviewed Aunt Mimi, who's long dead. I tracked down John's real father, Freddie, and I had one coup, a coup in the sense that nobody had ever interviewed him, but I didn't get much out of him. Ringo's real father. Ringo was... Ringo's parents, birth parents, divorced when he was three or four. He never knew his real dad. Uh and he was brought up by his stepfather, whom he adored. But I tracked down the, the real Richard Starkey, who was working as a window cleaner in Krug. <laughs> and I upset him first of all when I wrote to him, because I'm rubbish at spelling, I spelled Starkey wrong. <laughs> anyway, I went to see him, and I got his life and the separation, and he kept away totally. When Ringo became famous, he never reappeared. He made no attempt. Made to... no attempt to get money. You know. Then I did George Martin, obviously, and uh, Brian Epstein, and so many other people, George's parents. I did Paul's dad, who came to stay, me, stay with me lots of times, and I went to stay with him. So all these people, I've only had tape recorded them, Yes. Because these were people who had lovely memories. So, so, what a mistake. What was their general response to this enormous success that had happened so recently, hadn't it? They didn't... When you did this. George particularly didn't want to talk about being a Beatle. All he wanted to talk about was Indian mysticism and the sitar. And he'd go on and on and on. And I'd say, oh, by the way, do you remember the quarry men? Oh, no, not the quarry yeah, but because I because I was they were still at that they stopped performing in public, but they were still creating in the studio. So, but so because of that, if they, if they wouldn't talk about going backwards, which I would do one to one, they would talk constantly about what they were doing now. They had this idea for Sergeant Pepper. They got this idea, so I didn't have to take them back if. It, and talking about the apple, going through the whole seeds, the seeds of the apple story. You were there at the time that that was Which was absolutely right. mad and absolutely, you know. So I had so much... I wish now in the book, which I had to write very quickly because I, I didn't want it to stop. I was in Sergeant in Abbey Road for about three months. I used to go around to Paul's 
on two o'clock in the afternoon. He'd just be getting up and would have a fry up because he wasn't a vegetarian then. He, he's wiped it from his mind now. <laughs> and then we go with Martha, my dear, on Primrose Hill. And then we'd come back and John would come and they'd go up to that studio and they would have a new song. Like one day, I was on Primrose Hill with Paul and I said, it's getting better, meaning the daffodils are coming through, spring is coming. And he laughed and said, that was a joke phrase when we were in Australia because Ringo was ill and had another drummer called Jimmy Nickel. And after every performance, John would say to him, how's it going, Jimmy? And all he'd say, it's getting better. And they would take the piss out of them because that was... Yeah. And Paul started singing, you've got to admit it's getting better. And when John came, he said, I've got four lines. And John added to it in a very John-like way. You know the, the second bit? Go on. Um, well, you know, about cr- I was cruel to my woman. I treated her... Uh, beat her. Beat, beat her, her kept beat her away from yeah. the Yeah. So he, his input was not cheerful and lovely. It's getting better. It was, <laughs> I didn't know at the time that he was beating Cynthia. No, Cynthia never told me that. Nobody knew it. So I saw these songs. Then I would go in the studio and stay with them in... Abbey Road and wheedling my way in I got to sit in the bowels of Abbey Road which is the four Beatles and Neil and Mal the roadies getting the microphones and the stuff ready there they are that's Neil and Mal that's right that's Neil there Neil Aspinall and Mal that's the two roadies who were with them all their life both dead and Neil never told his story the when friends came like Mick Jagger or the wives came for the evening they would sit upstairs in the studio behind a glass panel with George Martin and the techies they were not allowed so I had this huge privilege of being down and I would be sitting there mostly bored out of my skull because they do 20 times the same riff or the same bit and the same so I'd be sitting there you haven't got a and they'd, have, they'd be laying down the vocal track to the backing track they'd done the night before. So they're sitting with their earphones on, and on the earphones they can hear the backing track, and they're singing into the microphone, and George's. And now and again I'd take my earphones off, and I could hear these sort of disembodied voices singing in my the studio with no music. And I thought, bloody hell, they can't sing. No. They're, out, they're out of tune. Yeah. It's yep. like singing in your bath yep. or singing in the swimming pool. It sounded so weird. So what was the secret of sitting there in the st- on the studio floor with Sm- them right. just, just saying nothing, presumably? Uh, did, you, did you smile and look encouraging or uh, tap a toe or I, anything I like? just tried to pretend I was with the band, I'm with the band and smarming and charming and not interrupting, not speaking till I was spoken to. When we did the Sergeant Pepper cover, we started off at Paul's house, then we went to Flood Street to the photographer's house called Michael, Michael Cooper. Cooper for the shot. And as we were leaving Paul's house, Paul said, oh, we'll need some stuff to put in the front because Paul had done the drawings. It's not really Peter Brake's creation, it's Paul. Paul designed it all on his head. Months before Peter Blake arrived, we were talking about it. Paul said, oh, bring some stuff. So I picked up from his mantelpiece 
I think it was an Ivan Novella Award, shaped like a Sputnik. And I picked it up, went into Michael Cooper's thing, and there was a, low of, a row of hyacinths spelling out the Beatles. Right, spelling right. out. Yeah. And I shoved it at the front. And to this day... It's there. It's there, and I put it there. <laughs> <laughs> that must give, this gives you a thrill, does it? It certainly Still. does, yeah. So that's your, that's your contribution to the picture of the Beatles. <laughs> that's right. You, there, there would have been nothing. No, absolutely. <laughs> that would not have sold. But there must have been times, particularly being a wordsmith, where you're sitting there when they're writing words, and you must have wanted to say, that doesn't they scan did, or They what. did. No, you wouldn't do that. They did... The thing about John and Paul was that they were each other's best critic and they would rubbish a line or say that doesn't work, other would go la, la, la. Well, now and again they would say to me, what rhymes with... Oranges. I know, it's mine. What else can we have for mine? What else can we have for... Um, it wasn't mine, but the, I was there when he turned around and said... Anyway, he wanted to rhyme for all and the other bloke... Terry Durham said Albert Hall and he worked Albert Hall in simple as that yeah yeah. so you went and talked to loads of people who sh- he had a considerable role in kind of shaping mm-hmm. who they were you talked to Astrid Kirchner and that's Stu Sutcliffe Stu was the best friend at art college of John very talented he won a big lot of money at the John Moore's prize and John talked to me to buying a bass guitar, which he couldn't play. <laughs> so he became a Beatle. And Astrid fell in love with them. In Liverpool, the audiences were roughly, I must choose my wording carefully, shop girls and hairdressers and secretaries. When they got to Hamburg, they had a different... They had art college students. It was a slightly older, slightly more arty set... And Astrid gave them... Look at that hairstyle there, 19 yep, whatever. Yep. She gave them their jackets and their thing. So I went to see her in 1967. Stu was dead. And she was sitting on this most amazing portfolio of photographs. The best photographs ever taken of the Beatles were the ones she did in Hamburg. In this sort of fairground, the sitting on a sort of fairground thing or a machine you'll know them when you see them and she was sitting on this amazing collection and she was in a flat a room in her mother's house which was all black and she had black candles and she was wearing black and black everything she was still in mourning for Stu who had died four years later think, think about doing the book when I did it the corpses were still warm the memories were all... Just, and she was yeah. working in a lesbian club in Hamburg as a bar lady and a vague gigolette. So if the lesbians didn't have somebody to dance with, they would dink with... And she was getting nothing. And I was saying, you've got all these photographs. She said, no, we just loyal to you. She eventually did sell them, did eventually print them. But at the time you did this, it was still, there were still so quite I fresh came, memories, weren't there? I, I came back to London... And I said, oh, I've just been in Hamburg. And they said, oh, yeah. And they wanted to know everything about Astrid. So that was a way of me currying favour with them. Another time I came back and said, I've just seen Pete Best. You know, he's working in the night shift in a bakery getting tuppence an hour. And they changed the subject. They didn't want to hear anything of Pete Best because they knew they'd been bastards. Yeah. They wanted shot of him 
But even John was too scared to do it to his face. They let Brian do the dirty work, and they felt guilty. So they didn't want to hear about Pete Best. Derek Taylor. Oh, what a lovely man. Derek Taylor, a legend amongst journalists. He was so witty, and he was so amusing, and so clever. He was a great writer. I met him long before he was working with the Beatles. I think when I was on... I went on a freebie to Galway the Galway Oyster Festival and Derek was working on the Daily Express and we had a brilliant piss up at the Galway Oyster Festival and we all had a room and we had a bar tub and Derek left a note for all the hacks saying drinks tonight in my room chaps number so and so help yourself so we all went to his room and he wasn't there we opened the minibar and drank everything and Derek had left earlier that day and paid his bill and we were forced to pay for all the drink. And it was such a lovely, rotten, tricky play he played upon us. So I met him two or three years later when he was with the Beatles. But he, was, he really enjoyed that role, didn't oh, he? Yeah. Being that kind of... But he fell out with Brian. Right. He goes to Brian's, Brian's autobiography called... A Cellar Full of Noise. Well done. And they fell out... There's probably out people out here who can tell you the ISBN number... <laughs> <laughs> they, they were, the Beatles were at some event, like Finsbury for the Christmas thing, or some event, posh event in London, and the Beatles have gone off, and Brian and Derek are standing outside waiting for their chauffeur, and Brian's chauffeur-driven car comes, and Derek jumps in and goes off, knowing it's Brian's, and Brian's left there, and he never forgave him. And he got the sack for that, and Brian went, <laughs> Derek went off to America. But he, he did love this kind of position of oh, being the did. spokesman. Of and course, yeah. Because there is the famous kind during, of during chair my, that he was always interviewed. During my year, two or three years of the Beatles, and subsequently, I never had any pot or any drugs whatsoever. Ringo once gave me a... Say re- pot again. Pot. Pot. I love Ashes. the way. Ringo once gave me one night at Sergeant... Uh, Abbey Road, a reefer. A reefer? Yeah, I thought, so I took it home and I said to my missus, <gasps> we've got a So we closed, after we'd done our day's work, we closed the curtains, put the telephone off the hook, lit up, <laughs> and nothing happened because we'd never smoked in our life, being awfully pure. So we didn't really know. After half an hour, we put the, called the, opened the curtains. Next day when I saw it ring, I said, I didn't think much of your reefer. He said it was cabbage leaves. (laughs) The only time I got high was because of Derek Taylor. I went to see Derek in Apple offices in Savile Road, number Mm -hmm. two. And we're going out for lunch. And I arrived in his office, and it was full of Sloney girls. And he said, it's my birthday. Would you like some of my birthday cake? I said, brilliant. So one of the Sloney girls, they had a kitchen and a a cooker and stuff there and she'd made him a beautiful came out of the oven gingerbread cake and I had three slices it was so lovely we went for lunch and I started and it was a hash cake (laughs) and that was the only drugs I had in my whole life good grief so apart from fresh air (laughs) the um how did they relate to the women in their lives and you know were were they you know they were obviously around they were subservient even Jane Asher. And at one stage, they were all made to 
dye their hair blonde to look like Bridget Bardo. And these women, even... Well, the kind of instruction when yeah, Beetle Wives for well. Yeah, for Fergus, yes. The Maharishi, I think that looks like... Yes. Rishi, Rishi thingy in India. I went with the... The first time they met Maharishi was at the Hilton Hotel. And the next day they decided to follow him to Bangor in North Wales, where he was. And I got rung by Michael McCartney, Paul's brother, to say, you should get to Bangor tomorrow. I said, what, Bangor? He said, there's going to be a happening. That was the phrase in the 60s. They're going, what? I thought, oh, bloody hell. I've got enough copy, but it might be him. So I went down to Euston Station, which is Chocker. They'd only decided the night before. And it was so busy, the two roadies got left behind with the wives and missed the train. So I got on the train, first-class compartment, the four Beatles, Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful, the six of us and me, travelled all the way to Bangor with them there sitting. <laughs> when we got to Bangor, we saw the Maharishi. He gave me my mantra, which I cannot reveal. And we went out for the evening to a Chinese restaurant. This is August 1967. It's a college at Bangor. It was empty. And we went to a Chinese restaurant and we had a big meal, the Beatles and me, and the bill came and it was, I've forgotten, 15 shillings. I had only 10 shillings on me and the Beatles had no money. Two years earlier, when they become famous, they'd become like the Queen and they didn't carry money. The roadies carried money and the roadies were still in London. And the Hong Kong waiters didn't know who the Beatles were, but they could hear the Scouse accent. They thought, this is typical Saturday evening. <laughs> they, come a- they come across the ferry, <laughs> go through the-, the menu and do a runner. <laughs> so they're sharpening their knives and they were getting out, closing all the doors. And I said, look, I'm a, a journalist on the Sunday Times. I can look, I've got- here's my visiting card. I'll come back, to- I'll get the money, don't worry. And they didn't believe it. And it was getting really nasty. And suddenly George had a pair of sandals. These are Birkenstock, by the way. We people in Parliament Hill, we only wear Birkenstock sandals. His were handmade leather. And he put his foot on the table, just like this, and got a knife, and he cut round there. And out of it, he took a £20 note. Two years earlier, when they become like the Queen, not carrying money, George was very sensible, thought, one day I'll get caught. I'll need, and that was it. And he paid the bill and we got out. 20 quid was all you needed <laughs> in those days. Now, so in your, um, in your book... Can you I have a drink? <laughs> carry, yeah, sorry, where's your drink? Yeah, there. Uh, in your book, you, 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 you deal with a lot of the places that they, um, that they are associated with. This is um, it's a favourite picture of Mark's, actually. This is the Beatles playing in Aldershot... Mm-hmm. In, uh, I think, I don't know what, there'll be somebody here who can tell me what year, right? 1961. It's in the book, in, in the encyclopedia. And, Everything's uh, there. It's all in here. And, uh, but this was their first kind of venture outside um, when they, they came down south, didn't they? This was yeah. one of the first times that they'd done it. And I think there, were, there was something like Aldershot, here we go, the Palais Ballroom, Queen's Road, uh, 9th of December 1961. God, that was early. Due to an advertising mix-up between the band's promoter and the local newspaper, the Aldershot News, only 18 people turned up for the gig. 
promoted by Sam Leach. It was intended to be a Liverpool v London Battle of the Band contest between the Beatles and top local one, Ivor J and the Jaywalkers. Excellent, yeah, they so did good. something of a Viz comic, <laughs> that was... And, uh, I remember that, the Jaywalkers. <laughs> Peter J and the Jaywalkers. Right. Can you see Pete Best in the corner? Yes. Looking moody on the drums. Never yeah. fitted. Yeah. Never okay. fitted the look at all. But you could say, Pete Best has had the happiest life of the four Beatles. Oh, all four Beatles have either got remarried ending in divorce and trauma and unhappiness, or in Paul's case, lost a wife through cancer. Pete Best has been married to the same woman all his life, and he's got a lovely family, and he still does touring, and thanks to anthology, he got something like a million pounds because he was on Love Me Do. So his life has been content and happy well, without being famous. Best of luck to him. <laughs> this is this is Bruno um, Kochmeyer, Kochmeyer, yeah. who was the, who was one of the uh, people who dealt with them in Hamburg. See, did you go to Hamburg? And, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I told you I went to see Astrid. They're oh, right, of course. And I went round all the clubs, the Kaiser Keller. <gasps> I can't remember the names. One of the problems I have because this was the first book about the Beatles, in the sense of a proper hardback, <clears throat> and I was. Nobody had gone back to Hamburg before. When I asked the Beatles, can you remember Hamburg? How many times did you go? Paul thought three, George thought four, and John couldn't remember anything. So I had this awful job to do to get... Because they went four times. I had to get the the clubs in order and get the dates and everything else. And I, I got it right. But what I got wrong, you can't believe I got this wrong. The first edition of the book, if anybody's got it, it's the most appalling mistake. The Beatles read it, the Beatles told me the vital event in their Beatley lives was meeting, John and Paul meeting at the Woolton Parish Church Fate on, I'm going to get this wrong, July the 7th, 1957. You have 56. I have 56. Well, <laughs> there was nowhere to go and check. Uh, there was no, nobody, I couldn't check. It wasn't in the papers. Posters have turned up since, but that's because they were famous. Yeah. Matt, getting a year wrong. <laughs> Appalling. I feel so guilty. So, Murray the K, who was a bit of a jerk, wasn't he, who, who kind of attached himself I, to I them? I didn't interview him, oh, right, but he was... Fine, OK. So, you, you, you spent time with them in the studio, as, as you say. You know, how do you... How did you see them start to change during that time? There must have been considerable change in a very short period of time. Every day there was a change. Every day they didn't believe what they did the previous day. And every album they did wanted to do nothing like it. So they're moving on all the time. They were endlessly developing. That's why I say I didn't want to stop. Because I knew it would be out of date by the time I... The dynamics were changing in that John for the first half of the time before Yoko came along was sort of spaced out not just drugs but his marriage to Cynthia was a sham and he couldn't be bothered and he, he was letting he'd been the leader for the first five years he was the strong one and they looked up to him and he decided everything and now because he was taking a back seat Paul was getting stronger and Paul was taking over, but John didn't really care. George was a bit pissed off when his tunes were not being on the 
and there's a bit of friction with mm. Paul and John. Uh, so there was those sort of dynamics, but there was there were no rows. There were they weren't each other's best friends, but they were best collaborators. Talking of talking of friendship, it's a picture here of you and your family on holiday with McCartney's thirty-two inch waist. Look at that, yeah. <laughs> on holiday in, in Portugal, I think. Yeah, can you see my wife's hairstyle? Yeah, that's the that's Vidal yeah, yeah, and you yeah. can't see. We went so, we went abroad after the book was out. I had pneumonia, and we hired a house on the beach at Prada Luge in the Algarve. It was a converted sardine factory. And in the middle of night one night, I heard this horrible shouting outside at two in the morning. Get up, you lazy bastard! In a very strong Liverpool accent. With no telephone. And I got out, and there was a taxi driver looking really worried. And Paul, with, with a beard, that's his letter B beard, I'd never seen him with a beard, and with this blonde American girl, I assume was a groupie and her child. When we left London six months earlier, he was with, engaged to, Jane Asher. And I thought they were a lovely couple. So I thought, what's happening? In London that evening, he just met Linda and he thought, where should we go? And because she had a little girl, Heather, that one standing there, he thought, we'll go and see Hunter. And he said to Neil, get us on a plane to, which is the address, and all the planes had gone. Well, hire one. So they hired a private jet and went out in the evening and landed at Faro in the middle of the night, which had not long opened as an airport. Paul had left with his guitar, a 50-pound note, and a <laughs> bottle of whiskey, and his cosy, his swimming costume. And... At Faro Airport in the middle of the night, he's looking around to get his money changed into... into Escudos, wasn't it? Well done, you are listening. So, and he gave it to a bloke. The bloke went off. Then he saw a taxi driver and said, taxi, and jumped into the taxi, forgetting he'd given a total stranger 50 English quid. <laughs> so he arrived 80 kilometres away with no money. And if we hadn't been there... We might have gone anywhere. I might have gone to Lisbon. We might have gone. So he stayed for two weeks, and we had a very good. Is it ever possible to be a friends of a friends well, with the Beatles? Because you, if somebody's staying with you, Margaret and he, because she was an intellectual, not like me. She died this year, and Paul liked a good a, a good bit of intellectual chat. They would stay up all night talking. So I did talk to him, and I thought we got on. We were holiday chums, right? But for holiday. So, look, we just got time. I thought there might be people who might have questions that they'd like to put to Hunter. I think we've got a mic here, have we? Have we got a mic that's going to travel around there? Anybody, anybody got a question they'd like to put? Stunned into silence. Yeah, sorry, can we pass this microphone down? Shout, shout it. We pass it down the front. No, I just want, I want, want to get it on the, uh, on the podcast. Thank you. Is it possible to say, out of the four of them, who you like most and who you like least? And, uh, and why? Oh, thank you. When I was uh, with the Beatles, even though I was in the background, a fly on the wall, my friends and my chums would say to me, who's your favourite Beatle? And I pinched a smart remark 
which Neil and Mal had. Neil and Mal had been with them for, I don't know, five, <clears throat> eight years, and they'd been asked that question on the hour. And their smart remark was, who's your favourite Beatle? Whoever I was with last. So I used to say that, and that made people stop and I'd walk on. But it was roughly true, because the each was fascinating, Ringo was fascinating, and his house was fascinating. So each time I was with one of them, but I suppose I was closest to Paul because he lived near, and he's a PR-type person. He was interested in the project and was full of... So I suppose Paul was the, the one I was... If that was your question, roughly... But, and he's actually, I always thought he was the most naturally gifted musical person. Music flew out of him, flowed out of him, flew out of him. John found it harder and was lazy and got stuck. But John, on the other hand, was very inventive and unusual. So I loved them all. Any more questions? Any more questions? I'm just going to ask briefly. <laughs> Sorry, is there somebody on? I can't see, sorry. <laughs> oh, it's me. Hello. Back to your left, David. Hi. Um, qu- question about the Beatles' music, Hunter. Did, did, you, did you like it? And oh. secondly, what was your favourite one? Uh, when you buy this book, a bargain at £30, I've done the one on the songs, and I've explained the background to every song, and I've given a rating to every song, which, as I said earlier... It's potty. So there's about, from memory, 10 with 10 out of 10. But I suppose the one I really liked best was Strawberry Fields, because it was the first one I really heard. And it was, it moved, it moved, it, it was such a, a vital stage in their development. But I loved, and I like Penny Lane, and I love A Life in the Day. At my wife's funeral this year, in March, in February, sorry, I I got them to play, and I love her. Ha, 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 ha. I can't sing for Toffee. I also got... I organised the funeral myself, and I had three songs. I had a Christmas carol because my wife was totally non-musical when she went on Desert Island Disc which I have never been on yet ever have you never been asked? I'm so furious grief she was absolutely non-musical and I made a Jewish Beatles songs anyway we had The Holly and the Ivy and then we had And I Love Her and for the going out of the service at Golders Green Crematorium I got them to play I ordered Georgia Girl she did a film called Georgia Girl it's a crap song but it's very jaunty and amusing by the Seekers and I told them what I wanted and the service was done by actually most of you live in North London have you heard of Leverton's Leverton's it's a massive funeral parlour there's one in Kentish Town but they're all over the shop they did Do you recommend him I get a discount when I die. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, they, instead of having Georgie Girl by the Seekers going out, I'm not sure I'm telling the story, they had a really awful slow pastiche of it, which is absolute crap. 
and I was so depressed that I got all levelness and bone. Anyway, they then gave, they apologised and gave three hundred quid to the Marie Curie Hospice in Hampstead where she died. I knew there was a point to that story. <laughs> <laughs> The Glory Game. Can I tell you one funny thing about... The, the, the great football book yeah. that you wrote in 1972 about Tottenham... There's a connection season. between The Glory Game and The Beatles. Good. When I was in Abbey Road, listening to them performing, I now and again used to think, if John and Paul have a row and they're looking for somebody to take it out on, they'll turn around and say, what are you doing here? Out. I remember thinking, if that happens... The book won't come out. I'll have wasted a year of my life. I'll have to pay the advance back. But I'll have had the experience as a Beatles fan of being there, so it won't be wasted. Five years later, I was in the dressing room at White Hart Lane with the football team, and I'd wheedled my way into being in the dressing room before and during the game. And I went training with them, because I was awfully fit in those days. and was only whatever I was. And I had most amazing access to them, you can't believe. But now they had, and they had big stars like Martin Chivers, Mullery, Martin Peters, Steve Perryman. I remember a row in the half-time between Nicholson and Chivers. He, Nicholson got it in his head that the England stars never performed for Spurs the way they perform, And the cups were flying. And he was looking around and I thought, oh God, he's going to pick on me because obviously I shouldn't have been in And I had the same thought, if I get chucked out, I'll have been there. Yeah, I'll absolutely. Have been. Well, you certainly have been there, yeah. and it's um, and, and much of it is recorded in, in this book, this If I Can Lift It, which Hunter will be very happy to sign for you, mm. uh, and you also sign copies of The Glory Game, uh, the, the, odd, the odd sad Spurs fan has, has, has come along with them. Look, not sad at all. <laughs> But uh, would you please join me in thanking, fascinating talk, Hunter Davis. Thanks very much. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. 